I'll never forget the day that I was probably middle school and I went to Ken's World of Video and I went to the war section, as was my <laughs> yeah. my won't. There's like and, a little Andy magnet in that section. That uh, for the sucks. for yeah. the listener, Andy's wearing camo right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I I saw a movie on on the shelf, and I believe it was. Kyber Pass, it was called, I think, or Kashmir. It was either Kashmir or Kyber Pass. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. And I just was like, oh, Indian war film? I'm into this. I know a little bit about, you know, the, the, the strife that goes on. And I was like, it's like two and a half hours. I'm like, this is going to be an epic. Oh, I love it, you know. And I rented it. And I went home and I put it on. And within like 10 minutes, there was like a big old just like, <laughs> they just, you know, Sure, you can imagine they broke out into song and dance, and I had never seen a Bollywood movie before. And I was like, "What the fuck's going on?" I was so disturbed, you know, because I was a young man. I I yeah. didn't know, you know, I didn't know, and I don't even think I finished it. I think I got through like half of it and was like, like just my brain was breaking because I'd never seen a Bollywood movie before. I didn't know anything about Bollywood, you know, and just. I've just seen couldn't that handle movie. the the wild shifts. You've seen that movie? It's Mission Kashmir, probably. Right? Okay. Is Early two thousand. Maybe. Yeah, we yeah. when we were prepping to go to India for some reason, that was one of the films that they wanted to try out. Um when we were like at DePaul before even flying out there, just like showing us a couple Bollywood films. That was the oddball pick they selected. And everybody hated it. But what was crazy about it is one of the actors in that, his name is Jackie Shroff. And when we were in India, we were in like the studio city of India, you know, like it's in this forest where they have all these Bollywood sets. And we ran into Jackie Shroff as he was like hanging out by his trailer. And we started talking to him and we introduced ourselves and said we were film students. And we're like, you won't believe this. We just watched you in Mission Kashmir like two weeks ago. And he was like, oh, oh, very good, very good. Yes, you know, great memories of Mission Kashmir. And then he's like, do you, do you all want some some chai? Would you like chai? And we're like, oh, 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 of course. And he snapped his fingers in the air. And a man ran up. And Jackie, like, demanded some chai. And within three minutes, they came back with a whole platter with, like, 40 cups of chai. For all of us. That's the star system, baby. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, well, the truth is, guys, starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders. I'm one of your hosts. And with me today, as always, are... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. For those who may be tuning in for the first time... Uh, give you a little spiel on on what our show is. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which 
one of us is tasked with selecting a theme or topic for the week, and then the other two hosts are challenged with programming a double feature in reaction to that topic, whether it address this topic directly and really, you know, be preoccupied in thinking about it, or, you know, you never know, we might buck up against the topic uh, just a little bit. We like to sort of fool around and play little pranks on each other. And um, so, you know, this week it, it was my turn to, to pick a topic. And one thing I was thinking about recently, just being up here in the Pacific Northwest, is how severe the weather has been lately. We had a very dry summer, lasted well into October, 90 degree days in October. Then we had a bunch of hydrologic alerts and, you know, we had uh, tons and tons and tons of rain at the, at the very end of the month. And now we're back in another dry spell. And it just feels severe, you know? It feels like extreme weather. So I was looking at the forecast of the gauntlet, and I thought, why not? Let's take a look at these sorts of things. Let's look at hurricanes, tornadoes, perhaps even some specific storms that I want to spoil it, that you'd, you'd spot on the ocean, you know, all sorts of different things. And I, I'm very pleased with, with, <laughs> with, with what we got today. Um, it's, it's a remarkable double feature. Um, one film filled with just rhapsodic imagery, beautiful colors and personality and beauty and grace. Uh, and then there's another film that's directed by Ridley Scott that we launched <laughs> this week. Um, <laughs> and I got to say, you know, <laughs> I don't mean to come down too hard, but I, this, this week we, we talk about s severe weather. Let's talk about severe viewing experiences. I think this week on The Gauntlet may be one film in particular, like the most I've enjoyed watching a film for the first time on the gauntlet, uh, and the other one maybe the most I've uh, not enjoyed <laughs> watching a film on the gauntlet. But you know, I'm I'm still happy to talk about it because that's 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 why we're here, and that's what people t tune in to hear about. Um, so, you know, I I'll just I'll I'll pass it off to the earlier of the two films. Uh, Marsh, tell us about the little weather trip that that you took us on. Well, it was really hard thinking about you know what to what to pick in terms of weather movies because of course weather cinematically speaking is quite expensive. So the domain of you know heavy weather, of course, is dominated by uh, the the big budget blockbuster or disaster film. And so I was hunting around for things that weren't that, you know, trying to find a way to uh, attack the weather uh, in a more uh, low budget or unconventional manner. Uh, and that's when I came across the weather diaries of George Kuchar. And in particular, uh, what we watched, of course, is Weather Diary One from 1986. George Kuchar, for those who do not know, is a legendary underground filmmaker who started making movies with his twin brother Mike in the 1950s and 60s, uh, and they made their way into the New York underground avant-garde film scene through basically uh, no-budget melodramas that sort of ripped off Hollywood in a campy way, uh, and people, you know, really, really vibed with what they did in terms of this, like, no-budget 
budget cinema that was like striving for uh, Hollywood uh, sort of sensation, basically. Uh, and ultimately, they they broke apart as collaborators uh, and. George then would go on to teach for many years in San Francisco where he made films with his students and also made a lot of diary films, especially with the advent of video. Uh, he was a prolific maker of all kinds of movies, fiction and nonfiction. He made hundreds and hundreds of movies in his life. Uh, and Weathery, Weather Diary 1 is one of them. The film concerns uh, his uh, attempt to uh, experience the heavy weather of Tornado Alley. And this is, you know, a, a preoccupation of his going way back, you know, this preoccupation with storms. And he actually worked as a uh, for NBC News drawing weather maps early in his career before he really like became a full-time filmmaker. And so he has like this like weird personal history. There's even like tornadoes in some of the films he made like when he was a teenager and stuff like that. So uh, ultimately, uh, he made a film in the 70s called Wild Night in El Reno, which was like a six-minute shot on film, kind of impressionistic, like stormy night in Oklahoma. He expanded this idea into the Weather Diaries, which uh, I don't actually know the, the real number, but went into the teens. Like he made these things starting in the 80s, well into the 90s. And uh, yeah, so it's, uh, geez, it's, you know, a guy <laughs> hanging out in a motel in Reno, Oklahoma. He claimed the film cost $11 to make. The whole film was edited in camera, uh, no post-production involved at all, which is insane to think about. Less insane, I had to look this up, there was an insert uh, function in the camera so you could like you could record a bunch of stuff and then overlay like inserts you know so that's like how he bounced back and forth in time in some of it God but damn. I was like losing my mind when I learned like there was no post because the editing in this film is unbelievable and it was all done in camera on the eight millimeter analog video uh, and so yeah he hangs out in this motel and he films you know the, the weather channel he films the weather outside he films the goings-on in his shitty disgusting motel uh, and he also focuses on another kind of storm the storm of the digestive tract uh, which is sort of like you know the the subplot of the film on top of yes him just trying to uh, capture you know this this part of the country that has insane weather uh, and you know I have to point out uh, he's not a storm chaser because he's from the Bronx and he never learned how to drive so uh, he just walks around you know and and I don't want to yeah I don't want to get into too many of the details but it's a uh, very funny, very poetic, very disgusting uh, film. And, and yeah, I, I had a great time. This was, of course, yeah, my first time seeing it. And uh, yeah, that's Weather Diary 1 by George Kuchar. Thank you. Yeah, I agree that there's a, um, 
an interesting mixture of literal storms and then maybe some alternate <laughs> storms, uh, such as in the digestive system. And Andy, your film as well <coughs> features a mixture of both literal storms and other types of perhaps emotional storms. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about, about those? Well, I want to be clear before I get into this. Um, you know, I, I guess, I don't know if this is a confession or not, but um, you know, I'm not the biggest Ridley Scott guy uh, at all. Um, I'm burying the lead here a little bit. Um, I think he's, in my book, one of the most overrated quote auteurs of the last, you know, 40, 50 years, whatever it is. Some films of his, I enjoy, but not necessarily because his name is attached to it, I think, you know, for, for other reasons. And um, and so in this in this this long career of a, of a man who I I can you know I I think I jokingly called him Midley Scott to to Marsh as I was <laughs> laying out my my pick uh, I I had you know a vague vague memory of being a child and my dad watching this movie about you know people sailing and a and a big storm. Uh, playing a role in it. So uh, I came back to it, and that film is 1996, White Squall, directed by Ridley Scott. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a movie that, you know, I, I, for a guy who isn't a big Ridley Scott fan and doesn't have a high opinion of him, uh, you know, uh, I, I had sort of discovered that a lot of people consider this one of his worst films. So, so I was, I think, intrigued by that in a, in a kind of masochistic way of being like, oh, well, you know, he's made some crappy movies in my book. And, and if people, you know, the general public is saying this is not one of his good ones, then I, I, I got to lay eyes on it. Um, so I think that was sort of what kind of kind of brought me to it. And then, you know, kind of reading a little bit more about it, I was sort of like, yeah, why not? Let's 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 give it a go. But but really, uh, I became very excited when I discovered, unbeknownst to me, maybe some of our listeners are already like keying in on on a very, very uh, recent, you know, uh, an important, I guess, you know, detail of this movie, um, which is that it's basically the the, I guess, official or unofficial film of the QAnon movement. It features uh, the, the, the rallying cry, the, the slogan that is often used by that group of whack jobs. Where we go one, we go all. And, and though some people attribute it, even within the movement, to President John F. Kennedy, it actually comes from this movie and so once marsh informed me of that and i had no fucking idea that that actually was the case i was like oh hell yeah even more specifically it is not even the movie itself but the trailer for yeah, this the film. storm is coming yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean and, and you know obviously this is going to be something we we get into uh on on the pod today so so i think we'll we'll, we'll save that for later but for those who haven't seen the film uh, this is a true story about a disaster that befell a, a what's described as a, a teaching ship 
a, a sailing school on the sea, and and it's not just necessarily a school that teaches young men how to how to you know rig the men cell, but also you know math and English literature and and that kind of shit. It's uh, it was known as the Ocean Academy Limited, and it was started by a man named Christopher Sheldon, who in this film is played by a very young hunky hot Jeff Bridges from 1996, still looking nice and trim and tanned and beautiful. Uh, and he is the the skipper of this ship, which in this movie is about sort of taking I guess like troubled and at-risk young boys out onto the unforgiving ocean to teach them all kinds of lessons about life. And in reality, in 1960, I believe, um, was the year, uh, a a white squall, a, a sudden violent windstorm at sea swept the ship turned it over, it, it capsized and sank, and several people died. It was a very dramatic thing, and there was a, a tribunal afterwards, all this kind of stuff. So that is the the playing ground for, for Mr. Scott to to jump in and, and present this sort of coming-of-age story, if you will, about these young men learning really, really tough, hard lessons in the face of some very, very yeah. disastrous weather. Um, yeah, it's not a great movie. Uh, but it is a, I think, uh, an interesting movie, especially in light of recent events. And I think it's a perfect pairing for George Kuchar's Weather Diary Number One because I think they represent the absolute polar opposites of filmmaking in just about every way imaginable. So, so I had to be very clear about that. This movie sucks, but I think we're going to have a blast with it today. So that is White Squall. Thank you. Thank you both. <laughs> well, thank you, I suppose. Yeah, I, White Squall is, is a, a bigger piece of shit than the giant turd that we see George Kuchar take in, <laughs> in The Weather Diary, number one. Um, and it's funny, I, you know, I would say too, I, I'm not like a big Ridley Scott guy. I've enjoyed many of his films over the years. And one thing I will, you know, give some credit towards for, for White Squall. You know, I made a little joke about the rhapsodic visuals of George Kuchar, but I will say, you know, even a bad Ridley Scott movie typically looks pretty good. He does have a few that notably look awful, but I do think generally his films are very pleasant to look at. He's like this weird guy that is super studied of like paintings, you know, he's like a, he feels like a British art student that went to like a really stuffy school um, and walked away with that with like a really appreciation of fine art, you know, and White Squall looks great. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. I think the filmmaking itself is like not particularly interesting, but just looking at, at the locations they've shot, the way they capture that boat, especially during the storm, like I do think it looks good at the very least it looks expensive and like kind of nice to stare at for a little bit <laughs> sure it looks like it it didn't cost 11 dollars. i think we can yeah. say safely yeah. but but ryan i guess i would add to that you know to your description of ridley scott as being this this like art student or whatever i i i think i would refine your definition a little bit by saying to me ridley scott is um an advertising student who has sure. also as an elective taken you know some some art 
yeah. you know, some crash course in art history so <laughs> that he can, you know, make his his Ralph Lauren polo advertisements pop a little bit more. And that's to me what this looks like. This is like goddamn Brooks Brothers movie or some shit like that, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, he is really obsessed, I feel like, with the type of symbolism you would find in painting, which then with his like ad brain type sensibility comes across as really blunt and like awkward you know he loves grandiose images that seem to be signaling these like broader things to make everything feel majestic and mythic and um i mean that certainly doesn't come across in this film for sure though i do think that the storm itself is a pretty impressive feat in that film you know, at first I was like a little bitter, of course, because I'm watching this thing thinking like, man, there's more No Parents, No Rules. I think if you total up all the scenes in the apple, then there is storm in the white squall. But I do think it still delivers, you know, and I it's clear that the white squall is such a central event if we're looking at these like two storms here. Because one other funny thing I learned about white squalls um, like if you read about them, this film obviously gets brought up a lot and just this incident because this is like the most notable white squall event that supposedly ever happened. It's like kind of disputed. allegedly. Yeah, yeah. If it even happened. <laughs> right. And I thought it was funny reading that it's actually more commonly something that happens in the great lakes. Did you, did you notice that about white squalls? Yes. I mean, it, it's, it is. And I didn't know much about squalls going into this, uh, other than that, like, Oh, that sounds bad, you know, <laughs> but, but when you read like the meteorological definition of squalls mm -hmm. uh they started a very i think like when you think of like disastrous weather at, at, a, at a lower threshold you know a squall in the definition that i read was like begins with wind gusts of like 25 miles per hour or something like that so a squall could basically be just some really bad wind for about a minute uh this goes to the the other end of the spectrum with it you know the, that squalls can get get really big and and have really ferocious winds but but yeah i mean you know as marsh kind of alluded to and and i think you did you know there's even some discussion that i discovered in research that that you know a lot of people don't even believe that there was an actual white squall that that affected this this ship or or led to its sinking but but yeah i mean uh, this movie certainly you know really tries to capitalize on the idea of this storm but as you've mentioned and we're getting ahead of ourselves um it's it's actually a rather small portion of of the film which uh, was a bit disappointing to me. Yeah, despite literally the title of the film. You know, I could right. see why like yeah, it maybe flew under the radar there. The film names itself after a storm. Yeah. You kind of figure it's going to be a bit bigger part of it. Whereas, you know, in Weather Diary number 1, I mean, we are we are getting glimpses of of some pretty pretty heavy weather uh right off the bat you know in terms of just measuring these two films one that has like you know millions of millions of dollars and technicians and people behind it to to give us storms and 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 that kind of expensive uh footage that marsh was talking about it really doesn't deliver and yet weather diary one for for its minuscule budget uh and one man crew uh certainly gave us uh, so much, so much, you know, it's outrageous. I mean, it makes my brain shut down when I think about that this film was edited in camera and I don't know, Marsh, I don't want to like put you on the spot in case you found any other like notes about 
how he managed this footage because there are so many visual rhymes and moments of comedic timing that are just truly out of this world. And the idea that it's imagining he's scanning through these tapes in the camera, finding inserts to then move over just blows my mind. I mean, even think of things like he's at a diner and he pours some creamer into his coffee cup and the swirl of the creamer looks exactly like a shot of a tornado building up that he saw on the weather channel presumably a couple nights ago and he cuts right to it you know yeah there's a shocking amount of associational montage and match cuts for a movie that is edited in camera and i mean i can really just say like this guy made so many movies and in fact the class he taught at the san francisco art institute was a workshop where students just made movies with him uh so this is a guy that like that's just what he does with no money and he'd been doing it you know at this point for 30 plus years and he's not an old man you know like he's probably in his 40s in this movie you know right like just practice you know i mean yeah. I, I, I don't know it's like it, it yeah it it makes your head hurt because it's like there are sequences where he's you know doing these like sky montages of clouds you know and it's like he just pulled that off on the fly like what what do you what? yeah the comedic timing of so much of what's happening and Again, even for me now, just discovering that it was all in camera is 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 really uh, very unsettling because <laughs> it's it's one of the most like intricately constructed films I've ever seen, and certainly in comparison to something that is just so so like conservative in its approach, like White Squall. I mean, um, the the achievement of Weather Diary number one, like I, I cannot, you know, I cannot, I cannot emphasize this enough. Like I, I am completely and utterly blown away by, by everything, by everything that I saw. Like, you know, for our listeners at home, like I apologize because I'm, I'm now like the, the, this probably this recording of this podcast is ruined for me because now I'm just sitting here thinking back on everything <laughs> I saw in Weather Diary number one, realizing that somebody was doing that all in camera and and I'm I am completely flabbergasted because it is uh the kind of thing you would assume was like you know 6 months of post production <laughs> and and scouring through hours and hours of footage to like find the the little moments that yeah can take a cloud burst or a bit of rain falling off of a roof um, and, and through an Eisensteinian sort of bit of montage, create, uh, an incredibly deep, touching, profound, thoughtful, or hilarious bit of montage. I mean, it really is, um, uh, uh, a towering, towering work of, of cinematic magic that's, that's happening here. It really is. And it's clear because so much of it is so instinctual. I mean, I, 
I'm glad that the mystery wasn't, you know, dissolved, Marsh, by you potentially having a reveal that, like, he took extensive notes and, like, logged all of his footage, because there's just no way, you know? Like, this is a man who was witnessing all of this beauty, and he deemed everything beautiful, you know, from the mundane to the severity of, like, extreme weather happening outside his motel room. Um, He treated all of it with, like, equal grace. So the way that he probably categorized everything in his mind is just, like, so unique to this one man and it was funny when i was watching i i started to get the creeping suspicion pretty early on that it was cut in camera but didn't like confirm until it was over um but it was like especially the way that the edits look at the beginning of the film to me were like very reminiscent of like what vhs like in camera editing looks like because of the way the images degrade in between each cut there's like a little fuzz with every cut you mm-hmm. know? and there's yeah. like a brief moment of extreme saturation where the colors are like out of this world vibrant and then it kind of goes back but it worked so well especially at the beginning as if he knew it would look like that because there are so many scenes where it feels as though the storm in the front half of the movie is destroying the structure of the film itself, as if like when there are these explosions of lightning that it's tearing into the video as we cut into another image of him in, inside his hotel room looking out the window as the rain's trying to break its way in. It is just unbelievable. I was thinking a lot about the the sound of wind on video, you know, during this movie, and, and in the best way. I mean, yeah, like, this movie's got everything. It's got the wind in the trees. It's got the turds in the toilet. I mean, <laughs> you know, on, on the flip side, and, and, and to what you both were saying about, about Sir Ridley's uh, you know, a seafaring epic here. To me, I was thinking the whole time, like, this is British schoolboy cinema. Mm-hmm. I mean, from its blinkered perspective, you know, of all of these, you know, white, uh, troubled, quote-unquote, privileged kids, you know, on this voyage of discovery uh, with, you know... Uh, the other in the background, you know? Uh, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's just so naive. And so, like, this is just great adventure, you know? like. Oh, man. Yeah, there's that moment in The White Squall that is supposed (laughs) to just be, like, a a cute, you know, like, oh, sexual awakening. Look at them fumbling through their adolescence sequence where it's, I think, maybe the only line that a black character has in the entire film. And that's when they set him up to see a sex worker, and he's, like, lured in by this beautiful younger black woman and then when it comes time to like get what he paid for like an older black woman comes out and Ridley plays it off like so clumsily not that this scene could ever have been done with any sort of grace but it is just this horribly offensive like moment of broad comedy of like wow could you imagine this young boy sleeping with this larger black woman you know and it's just That scene was so symptomatic of how so much of this film felt. I mean, this is one of the widest movies I've ever seen. And so is The Weather Diary, number one, in a way, but it's kind of conscious about that because he's so out of place. You know, it's just like, oh, here's the guy from the Bronx. And he's, I don't think it's ever said if he's staying on a reservation, but it's clear that there are like many indigenous people that live in the area. But at least he talks to them. 
and he tries to just connect with them <laughs> on a human level when you've got something like the white squall that is just like mocking and laughing and finding everything around it exotic, you know? Well, it's it's like it's the the very like mealy mouth Hollywood attempt at, you know, this really expensive largesse made by very, very wealthy, wealthy people that is trying to sort of pander to middle class America, you know, the, the working class, the, the lunch pail crowd, you know, and, and it's just like not true. The whole thing is a goddamn lie from the get go. They try to establish that it's like, these are, you know, yeah, they're, they're troubled kids. They're at risk kids. They're, they're, they're normal people just like you and me. And they like, they aren't, that's just a lie. This like sailing academy was was for like wealthy people i mean it was it was like this college prep thing mate you know that was devised by some fucking phds to be like oh this will this will help you get into harvard or wherever i mean uh, i read that the 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 fees were were like in 1960 it was like for this year of of sailing and instruction it was like three thousand dollars but that's like the equivalent of like thirty or forty thousand right, dollars today. Yeah. So, so these aren't like poor kids, but they really try to emphasize that they are poor kids. And it's like, no, that's that's all a fucking lie. Yeah, it's just this this pandering, this pandering bullshit, you know. Uh, and 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 George Kuchar is just like showing us, showing us what America actually looks like. I mean, this is what. Dude. This is what most of America looks like right here yes. with these people in these kinds of restaurants, like eating fast food and and extolling the virtues of a three ninety nine all you can eat Chinese buffet. I mean, like, yeah, White Squall is is like offensively like misleading uh, in 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 retrospect. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because the Jeff Bridges character, you know, preaches this kind of like self-reliance, rugged individualism uh, kind of thing, you know, like to these boys, like, you know, I mean, really it's like he's their daddy, you know, yeah. like they all have daddy problems. That's why they're all here. And now he's their daddy. And he's like, you know, going to teach them how to be men in the very uh, American way. Um, and, and I was thinking about that because I, I came across in, in some research on Weather Diary, uh, a writer comparing it to Walden. Mm. And so now I'm, I'm thinking like the false self-reliance preached, you know, I know that's uh, like Thoreau or not or Emerson or whatever, there's a difference, but, right. uh, you know, the, the, the sort of like what's preached <laughs> and practiced in White Squall versus, you know, the, the real Walden, George Kuchar, yeah. you know, talk about self-reliance, you know, mm -hmm. he's got to walk all the way to the Safeway to get grape jelly, 99 <laughs> cents, yeah. you know? Yeah, in the middle of a in the middle of a, a goddamn tornado. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Man, and yet no, the Walden comparison is fascinating because when you think about the way he's responding to this room, because I guess it should also just be pointed out that Weather Diary number 1 is like it would have been funny to have watched this at the beginning of the pandemic because it's like it evokes so much of what lockdown can feel like, you know, just when you're like stuck in a room and you yeah, start. It's also rear window, you know, it's not sure. just Walden. It's That's Kuchar's true. rear window where he's <laughs> yeah. like, he's like, you know, even talking like there's Chuck, you know, like. That ain't his girlfriend. That's 
she's the woman who owns this place. He's moving to Houston. I don't think there's been much jobs here. But Ruth looks like a strong lady. She can handle this place well with Roy. Maybe we'll meet Roy later. Chuck has got everything strapped to his car. I don't know if Ruth is his mother or what. She could very well be. I doubt it though. I used to stay uh, at this uh, motel around the way where Ruth's daughter Gloria ran it. Gloria divorced her husband Jim after his heart attack. And uh, she must be having trouble with her feet. And Gloria moved to Dallas. They're all heading south. Talking about all his neighbors and spying <laughs> on them, like, and I think he knows it too. I mean, a man oh, uh, who's yeah. such a big fan of fifties cinema, you know. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's coming up with all this extra drama um, that he knows will like play off um, cinema in a, in a funny Gloria. way. <laughs> but but my, the main thing with Walden that what I think about with um, with Weather Diary is one of those moments where he talks about how the storm makes all of these appliances in the motel musical. More musical uh, house fixtures. And how he loves the music that comes from the rain hitting the like air conditioning window unit or the amount of hail that's hitting the storm shutters that make his room really, really stuffy. But he describes everything that's happening around him as music, and it has that kind of Walden feel where all of a sudden, all these things that we get used to and see every day become beautiful in this brand new way. I mean, even when he's dealing with fast food, it has that feeling too. Like that was, I was looking at it and thinking how beautiful it was when we were getting close-ups. Of his shitty breakfast. The Pizza Hut deal. Pizza Hut, yeah. Uh, and yeah, talking about the, the highs and lows, you know, the, the moments of supposed tragedy and white squall where we, we were supposed to really feel for these boys. I really felt for George when he went to Pizza Hut and they didn't have the promised storm map that was like advertised on TV that they like ran out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, from his basically like... If there is an antagonist in this movie, I want to say it's Gary England, the local <laughs> yeah. meteorologist who George is in constant conversation with and criticizing uh, the disco, quote, disco music in his uh, tornado special. Uh, I mean, that's like a huge part of it, too. And, and so skillfully done is, you know, Kuchar is playing off the television. Right. And And it's not just the weather channel and and the weather reports and the news reports being that there's so many tornadoes, uh, but he's also watching movies. He's listening to the weather radio, you know, specifically he's got all these gadgets that provide him uh, that interaction that he can sort of, you know, reflect off of or bounce off of. And so, yeah, he's like, has this rivalry with Gary who he's always talking about. And so, yeah, it's like the Gary England promotional tornado alley map. Uh, that was at Pizza Hut, and he can't get it. Yeah, you know it's 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 funny, but it's like it's so true because like what what he's showing in many of of these moments is sort of the realities we face, you know, 
being caught up in constant sort of storms of media drama, mm-hmm. right? Me- manufactured mediated drama, whether it's just, you know, weather or, or a, a monster movie on TV, you know, like he's, he's undercutting the drama constantly in, in very humorous ways of, of sort of showing the ways in which the, the TV is, is trying to, to get us worked up in, in all these different ways, whether for products we're supposed to buy or, or, you know, a weather broadcast we're supposed to watch, otherwise we're going to die, you know, or, or just simply getting, you know, uh, us worked up over a, of, of pretty woman or, or whatever on TV, you know, where, where he's, he's constantly sort of like thumbing his nose in a really like charming way at the, the just like made up nonsense that surrounds us at all times from, from, from media drama that actually doesn't affect us. Whereas, you know, white squall is, is trying desperately to manufacture that drama from, from the opening frames. You know, it's trying to get us to, to believe all these lies, to, to, to make them a part of our existence, you know, to, to learn lessons as well. And it's just, it's so pathetic the way that this movie creates out of thin air. And like, don't get me wrong. I mean, like that's movies. I mean, like there's so many movies. I mean, that's movies. It's, it's all bullshit. It's all manufactured drama. But like in, in the case of white squall, it is just like one of the most disingenuous movies. I think I've, I've ever seen in that regard. I mean, I, I cannot, I, I, I cannot give it any credit for like anything that it's, trying to do or claiming to do or or seeking to do like it's like weird to like even try to think about like going through this movie and like talking about it as if like any of it fucking matters but like (laughs) the worst offense in this movie there's a lot of offenses and we're probably going to get into some of them but like the worst offense to me in this movie uh comes at a moment when when suddenly these boys who are sailing from you know the Caribbean down to, I guess, you know, uh, South America past the equator and then back again. And at a certain point, they have to pass a small island nation named Cuba. And out of nowhere, this Cuban patrol boat just like bears down on them. And and the shift in tone of the movie from just this like, yeah, just boys at sea growing up, trying to get their dicks wet, whatever. Listening to John Savage quote John Donne poetry. Returning guest of the gauntlet, John Savage, <laughs> last seen coaching USSR basketball, now here uh, to be, yeah, like just such a, a screenwriter motif character in the worst and corniest way possible he's just like prodding around the ship quoting shakespeare and homer uh it is just acting like an old salt a sailor guy yeah (laughs) oh god it's it's like a caricature i mean honestly you know you the the way you described it earlier i i kind of feel like this is like this is ridley scott's john ford movie like this is like 
this movie could have been made, yeah, by John Ford in like 1939, I feel. I mean, it, it has all of the tropes. Like there's so many like John Ford things, like the love of the sea. The sea is a place where where we will we will mature and we will grow or we will be punished, you know? Like it's an unforgiving place. And and Jeff Bridges is sort of this, I was going to say John Wayne, but I, I feel like he's more of John, like John Ford's usage of Henry Fonda, yeah. you know? I thought he was doing like a Sterling Hayden impression. Did either of you get that at all? Well, he was, I mean, it's honestly, I hate to say this. I think, you know, I think Bridges, of course, is a, is a great actor and a national treasure, but I think he's kind of bad in this movie. Yeah. And I think it's because he won't stop furrowing his brow and trying to sound mm-hmm. important and yeah. trying to like, it's just so affected. Like, yeah, to add absolute seriousness to every single moment on the ship and, and, yeah, everything is just yeah, it's so telegraphed and John Savage is is doing his ward bond, you know. It's such a John sure. Fordian thing to have this guy who's who's gruff and always got a stogie in his mouth and he's a, he's the chief of the boat. But he knows the tempest by heart, you know? And 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 that's just such a hokey yeah. fucking thing, you know? But it's like it isn't 1939, it's 1996. For, for fucking God's and sake. In the movie, as we learn, it's 1960 during right, the right. Cuban again, Missile Crisis. Right, brings us back to this whole Cuban <laughs> thing where, where suddenly the, the patrol boat is bearing down on them and they are all panicking because we know the Cubans are going to take anyone off the ship, kidnap them, murder them, throw them in a fucking like Cuban gulag or some shit like that. And they are, they're panicking. And one boy, they're like, they're like, get your passports. You need to prove you're an American citizen from, as we've described, like the most white and American looking boys you could possibly imagine. But, but what's implied here is that if you don't have an American passport, the Cubans are just going to like take you prisoner and, and kill you, execute you on the boat or some shit like that. And, and in, in all of that, we have the, the, the character of the cook, who on the boat is revealed he's a Cuban. He's a Cuban refugee that has gone to America, and, and the Cubans would love to get their hands on him. And this guy's like in tears. He's just like, my life's over. The Cubans are coming for me in particular, and this other kid from Ohio who doesn't have his passport or whatever. And that's such bullshit because the cook is an actual guy who did die on that boat and he was not a Cuban refugee. Oh I don't God. know his exact nationality, but his last name was like Patachik. He was like probably a Pole from Chicago or some shit like that, you know? But here we've got to somehow in the end of history where, where the Soviet Union has dissolved, still have, I guess, a big other and Cuba's always going to be our enemy and Important a bad Important to guy. have a scene in 1996 where uh, Cuba's the, uh, the villain. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're acting for those who are probably never going to watch this movie. And I, I encourage you not to like they, the, the way Ridley Scott has directed these, these guys to play the Cuban soldiers is exactly as the like Vietnamese prison guards act in Rambo. You know, you're violating international law by boarding my ship, but you invited us. Your cannons made a compelling argument. Capitano! No, no, tiene. It's okay. He's got one. I got a passport. I swear to God. Go away. He left his passport in Grenada. It's being mailed to him in Panama. I, I left the last time we boarded. I... That's... It's unfortunate. We'll have to take him with us. No! No! 
Like, I mean, it's, it is the, it is like a cartoonish depiction of like, you know, a, a, the violent militaristic regime and their abuses of power on these poor American bullies who are just trying to sail for God's sake. You know, yeah. I mean, it is, it is worse than offensive. You know? It is. <laughs> I mean, it is. Worse. And I guess I have like kind of a funny thought exercise now that I think about it, because you mentioning that this film feels the closest thing to um, a Ridley Scott John Ford film or as if it like could have belonged in that era with many of its preoccupations funny enough I mean we've made this joke all the time even if it is a joke but like while watching White Squall within 20 minutes Molly was like this should have been directed by Clint you know and it's funny thinking about late Clint Eastwood one of the things I like so much about it is how America actually looks like America in it, you know, as a funny connection then to like kind of loop in this crazy thread back to George Kuchar where it's, this is what America actually looks like. Clint Eastwood's movies look like George Kuchar's movie. Yes, yes, I agree. But do you think this movie could have been saved at all? Or do you think this was like dead in the water? I mean, I guess Clint probably never would have taken on the script because he is very selective about what he picks. But even like, let's say he preserved the script. Do you think Clint could have saved this movie? I don't think anyone could have saved this movie. I mean, it's just an ill-conceived thing from, from the start. I mean, like... It doesn't help, you know. Uh, I guess we should we should say, you know, there's some some burgeoning uh, stars in this film, like uh, Scott Wolf and, and Ryan Phillippe and Balthazar Getty. Okay, not really Jared stars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, all these guys who would later like get on spinoffs of Law and Order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're, I mean, they're all just you know really bland. I think for the most part, like there's not. You know, they try to give them all these distinguishing features, but to me, I'm like, they're all the same guy. Yes. Like, they all want Jeff Bridges to be their dad, uh, and they all want their other dads to to like them, you know? Uh, and I'm just watching this thing, again, just going, like, why does this exist, you know? Like, it's interesting, because... Kyle pulled up the trailer, you know, uh, and the, the trailer is structured like uh, Sergeant Rutledge. Speaking of John Ford, it's like the court case is the spine of the trailer. Mm. So it makes the film seem like it's like Rashomon at sea, which would probably be a more like interesting approach to this. Like, yeah, did the White Squall Road really happen or did this guy just fucking kill all these people on accident? <laughs> you know? I like, think that that is something if Clint were to do it would probably focus on more. Yeah, that would be the the Sully yeah. Richard Jewell exactly. aspect of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cuz it would be like he would also I mean that the difference between Clint and, and this shit is like this is is you know Every obvious beat, like the horns are swelling. They're trying to wrench so much out of nothing. And Clint would like downplay everything, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And then it would be like a weird question of ethics or whatever. Like, and then maybe it could be saved, but like, I don't know. It, it's pretty rough. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think, uh, <laughs> I don't think Clint would have touched yeah, actually, it. Actually, you know who could have saved it? George Kuchar. Yeah. Oh, man. He could have shot it in his bathtub in Reno, Oklahoma, and it would have been better uh, than this. I mean, you <laughs> I mean, know. he basically yeah. is making this movie. If the point of this movie is like, how are we tested by tough times? How are we tested by strong weather? Like, how do we, how do we grow? How do we learn? How do we, how do we measure ourselves? I mean, like, that's what weather, weather diary number one is. It's, it's like, can you 
maintain your sanity in the the tumultuous, like unpredictable patterns of of weather and life that we all find ourselves subjected to. And like George Kuchar comes out like stronger from it all. I mean, like when he is like saying his goodbye at the ending, I wanted to fucking clap. You know, I really did because I was like, you did it, man. Like, look at that. Look what you did. Look what you went through. Look at, look at all the, the minor, the minor, like, you know, tragedies and, and, and moments of, of beauty and, 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 and finding, uh, things to laugh about and things to be proud of. Like, in just the most like simple ways that we all actually like we go through, like none of us has a daddy that's spending $30,000 so we can go learn some lessons at fucking sea (laughs) with, uh, with captain Ray-Ban. I mean, like it's, it's such bullshit. I mean, it is so much more, I think, humanistic and, and a testament to what is great in people uh, what George Kuchar does is what I'm saying. Try to and, unclog the sink in his motel. Yeah, or, or fucking just like wash out your shitty underpants or whatever <laughs> with a wooden spoon. And I want to point out too one of the great gags of the movie, which I'm sure, well, it's not a gag to him, but uh, the refrigerator is in his bedroom in this motel. And that's a, that's a great like recurring gag. And he comments on it like, you know, every day I wake up and I see the fucking refrigerator. <laughs> Can you imagine waking up to the side of a refrigerator? Crazy. And he's got like fucking bugs, you know, as he yeah. discusses. He's got I mean, bugs in his is, motel. He's, he's basically like these guys trapped in the, the underbelly of this ship, you know? Like it's, sure. it's unforgiving outside and you are, you're locked in hot bunking with a bunch of other like smelly, disgusting, wet people. And like that's exactly the environment he finds himself in. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a, it's like a goddamn submarine movie almost the way that he's fucking it's like das boot is basically yeah. what weather diary number one is does doesn't he cut to das boot at one point there's a there's a clip oh, I don't in know. weather diary of some like submarine like it's very brief and i just wrote like das boot question mark question mark because yeah. i wasn't sure i mean what it was even but. if not like you're on that wavelength i mean yeah. i think he's on that wavelength. yeah I mean, because it really, like, the the perspective he has, even though it's, like, very much, like, guy hanging out in a, in a motel vibe movie, uh, he he comes at it from like so many interesting angles, like the way he looks out the window or the way he's using like the shades and the glass and the water reflecting on it. Like he's always finding like these interesting ways to see the mundane. Right. And it's like, yeah, it's just constantly inventive Mm -hmm. in that way. That's why I can't stop thinking about the idea of, George Cushard directing the White Squall. I'm imagining him in in the tub, and the albatross is made out of the the cardboard box of a Happy Meal, like those boys when they're when they're he, yeah. he calls it like McDonald's sailing early on when he's like filming those children. And I'm imagining the White Squall is just like George pissing on this like McDonald's makeshift boat, and he could call it the Yellow Squall. I feel like that's the film he would have made. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I was reading about, you know, speaking of here's the here's another connection between these movies. But the Kuchar (laughs) brothers made a film called A Town Called Tempest, 
and a tornado strikes the town and the tornado was done with toys and drawings and although I haven't seen it what I was reading described it as like well yeah it works because it has the conviction of being a real tornado because it's like the Kuchar brothers so like they're giving it their all in terms of like how intense it is but it's literally just toys and, and some scribbles you know uh but he's a great artist as well like he can like draw and, and shit like that but uh that's what i imagine ryan just yeah. like this like mis- mishmash of you know like things he's drawn things he filmed in the tub you know like but that's it i mean that's all white <laughs> squall and movies like it are it's just scaling that up with like millions of dollars that have been like dumped into the ocean or something <laughs> like that. I mean, it's, it's toys. These are like rich people's toys that, that uh, a director like Ridley Scott gets to go out in, in the big tub, the, the Atlantic ocean and screw around with, I mean, that's, that's all it is. You and know? they also had like a big tank in the Mediterranean for like controlled right. sea yeah. setting. Yes. Yes. Another very expensive toy oh, for a guy like that yeah. to play How much with. does it cost to rent part of the Mediterranean anyway? <laughs> you know, I will say, if I can say like one nice thing about the White Squall, for, for the storm itself, I was really impressed with... I don't even know if this was the sound design or just the score, but I loved during the storm whenever we cut to a wide shot of this ship tilting over with the squall, like just like capsizing it. The way the music had this really eerie, high pitched, like out of tune violin or something that would like send a chill up your spine. And it was kind of buried under the layers of the sound design of just the storm itself. And I will say, like, I felt the scale of that every time we cut to the boat. Like, I was legitimately impressed with the the storm and the sinking of the boat. I think it's a really impressive sequence until it starts to wring every, you know, all the life out of it with all the goodbyes and the looks and the, you know, like, it it starts off so strong. And again, it's like, we all know, like, we're not going to lie and say Ridley, like, isn't a decent visual stylist most of the time, you know? And, like, there he's really showing his chops. Like, when when Bridges sees, like, the lightning for the first time, like, that's a, a well-crafted moment. And mm-hmm. the wide shots of the boat are, like, breathtaking. And then it just devolves into, like, Goodbye, my wife. Yeah, every yeah. every like every every <laughs> every ship sinking cliche yeah. you can imagine is all. You know, Ryan, I'm glad you brought up that music too. I thought um, it was interesting uh, as well. I I really liked those, and I I almost thought my ears were playing tricks on me because it was like a bold choice. Yeah. in that moment because it was very like it wasn't very you know speaking of cliche, it didn't feel like a very cliche use of movie music in that moment. And it should be pointed out that the the composer of this film is a guy named Jeff Rona, who was Hans Zimmer's protege. Like that's how he was described. And Hans Zimmer actually began work on this film and then like passed it off to Mm. his his student you know teacher student relationship if you will and like in the credits there is this sort of like you know uh special thanks to Hans Zimmer or extra you know whatever like he contributed to that and I'm wondering 
you know, does that feel like a Hans Zimmer moment? Right. But it still kind of has like that weird distorted quality you might find in Hans Zimmer while in his like newer stuff. It's always like, but in this, it was like, you know, like it was just this crazy noise that like made you uncomfortable. Yeah, it was much more subtle, like, Mm -hmm. which I appreciated. Yeah, it felt like buried in there. Uh, way less subtle than the closing credit song of like Sting singing about the White Squall. I thought that was like super Whoa. funny. <laughs> I wish that that had played like at one point in the middle of the movie. Well, this is like also being made in the wake of Titanic, no pun intended, right? And so I feel like on a certain level, they're trying to, you know, it has a similar kind of structure and form to Titanic, where it's like you you set up the characters, you get everyone to care about them, we get their backstories, and then we say goodbye to some of them, you know? And 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 then even has this like, oh, and we gotta make sure we've got the nice single at the credits to get that Academy yeah. Award nomination for best song or whatever. It's just, it, it, there's nothing original in this movie whatsoever. And that reveals, you know, I I was thinking about the fundamental approaches to, you know, like heavy weather or extreme weather in movies. And it's like in White Squall, they they never see it coming, you know. And so like the whole movie just plays like, yeah, it's coming of age story. And then it's like, bam, here's the White Squall. Uh, And on the other hand, in Weather Diary 1, uh, Kuchar is uh, actively seeking out uh, the the bad weather, you know? And I was like, that was really like what hooked me just like reading a description of it. I was like, oh, Ryan's gonna love this, you know? Because it's like, <laughs> it's what you're literally doing. You're you're seeking bad weather, so is George, you know? Right, and it's very right. much like a, a voluntary uh, kind of thing, you know? He is storm chasing, but in his own, in his own way, <laughs> you know? In the way that I think any of us would storm chase yes. wherein that it seems like a really good idea and then you open up the door and you step outside and you just go fuck no screw that you know and you go back <laughs> yeah. in and and put on the weather channel you got to look up the tv guide to see when hell night starring linda blair is on <laughs> that's great that's like he he introduces that that he he had to miss this new show with linda blair uh, and then later you know said Watch the first half of Hell Night. Linda was voluptuous. Like Gloria. <laughs> like Gloria. <laughs> yeah. And and th- that's an interesting element, I think, of Weather Diary is as the film goes along, there are more like people that he's talking to. And I think it, it you know, because the film is basically constructed in real time or like in a very linear fashion, by the end, there's like interviews and he's like talking to people mm-hmm. uh, after being so alone yeah. for for a lot of the beginning where he's like speculating about these people he's obsessed with like the one guy's car and he just keeps filming it like every time it pulls in to park just like oh man yeah i mean you you really come to to feel like you have gotten to know people alongside him again in in a in a way that is so different from uh, the the laborious attempts of White Squall for us to like see these people as like actualized humans with with things to to care about. Uh, you know, it's it's trying so hard to get us to like 
feel something about these people. And and in George Kuchar, it's his film. It's 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 like effortless that that by the end we are concerned about Ruth. We are concerned about you know Roy. We are concerned about like this this potential infidelity that has been introduced into this group of people. We have we have started to 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 find out certain details of, you know, it's like, that's the thing, but it's amazing that you can get all of these, these actors and give them a script and give them all this work and it can just come up so cadaverous, so lifeless, so, so catatonic by comparison. I mean, case in point is like in, in white squall, there's a scene where one of the, one of the kids like, you know, reveals to the other kids, like, He's dumb, you know. He's like, I'm an idiot. Oh, I can yeah. barely, I can barely read or whatever. And so a couple of them, you know, they're like, we'll back you up, bro. We'll we'll school you. We'll totally teach you everything so you can pass your tests. And then there is not a single scene of that happening. <laughs> and then like 45 minutes later, it's like, dude, how'd you do on your test? He's like. I aced it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, what? That is my favorite scene of the movie. That scene made me laugh so hard because the way that thread is introduced is like the boys discover he was cheating and they get fucking so enraged at the thought of him cheating. They like pin him against the wall and they're like wrestling him to the ground. They're like, you were fucking, you were cheating on that test. If you cheat on this test, like you were going to be kicked off the boat. Like they, they're so impassioned that like how dare you commit such a moral offense to like our way of life and what's expected of us like that that the amount of conviction in that that just isn't even remotely a little bit believable was mind blowing yeah because they keep trying to make a point that these this is like a family being built at sea again like all these weird creepy daddy issues but like yeah that they're they're brothers they're a family and they have a code and we never we never get a glimpse into any of that other than the bell that just says where we go one we go all but mm -hmm. but it, it's actually incredibly like lacking in moments of camaraderie that aren't incredibly staged, incredibly forced. I mean, there's, there's also this, this other archetype. Cause again, these aren't like people or, or even characters really there. There's the archetype of the, the rich kid, the really rich kid, even though I got to imagine most of these kids come from some kind of money to again, in 1960 afford, you know, this, this luxury sailing school. Um, but Jeremy Sisto plays, Frank Beaumont, who is the the richest of the lot. And he is, of course, like the most troubled, the most villainous, the most like pot potentially psychopathic, yeah. I guess. Oh, yeah. Um, who at a certain point uh, murders a dolphin. He does. For his own for his own amusement. Um, just just shoots a dolphin next to the ship with a harpoon gun. And Jeff Bridges, in that moment, of course, snaps and, and threatens to fight him. And I was thinking if it was John Ford, he would have fought him. He would have kicked the shit out of that kid. But yeah, Jeff Bridges is basically like, you're done, you're off the boat. You know, like you're 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 done. That's it. And he, and he's throwing him off. And then like this manufactured moment of them all being like, no, he 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 needs another chance. He's got to go. And and again, what the movie's trying to do is make us go like, he belongs on the boat. Like this is the only place for him to learn and grow. And and I I can't believe it. I'm sitting there just being like, 
shoot him, like kill him, like kill this rich little fucking prick, like shoot him with a harpoon gun. I don't care about it. I don't believe in it. I don't believe in any of this. I don't find him in any way, shape or form like worthy of redemption. And the movie is no. trying to just like deliver that us, deliver that to us on a plate. And there's this really dramatic moment when he is thrown off the boat and, and Ryan Phillippe, whose whose big thing is that he can't climb because his brother fell out of a tree or some shit like that. Oh, yeah. He, oh, he climbs the mast. He goes to the top and he rings the QAnon bell. Frankie! And 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 the rich kid looks and is like, nice, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And just like leaves, and it's like, what are we supposed to take from this moment? That's so know? fitting that yeah, like there's this whole moment, and then he just walks away. There's no big, there's no big thing where like he comes back. Yeah, totally pointless. Yeah, Jeff Bridges is like, nah, did you see him shoot that dolphin? He's out of here. He's psycho. Like, he's- yeah, I did really like that it didn't change Jeff Bridges' mind. I thought that that was like definitely a possibility when that bell was being rung that like yeah. Jeff Bridges would have been so moved and found it all so warm that he would give him another shot. I was glad ultimately, that, you know. Like- Honestly, that was the <laughs> only moment, moment in this movie that I actually like liked where i was like good for you like good <laughs> good sticking by your gun and getting rid yeah. of that fucking psycho and not like going like yeah you know what you guys are right like he deserves another shot like nah fuck it that's the only no. thing i bought in the whole movie i'm like yeah any reasonable person would have done what he just did there yeah get rid of that kid he was gonna kill one of them there's no situation where he was going to like behave in, in any capacity but i mean it's funny that you refer to all of these freaks as like caricatures as opposed to actual characters in this film and about the deep personal connection that George makes with all the other um, humans around him in Weather Diary, we should also point out the the beautiful connections that he makes with the animal life around him as well. Um, Some of which, of course, is the farm animals, which has like one of my favorite lines of the whole film when he's like looking at a donkey and imagining the type of gas that uh, those animals are passing. Like we're sort of feeding time for everything. I didn't have any food for these buggers. But they kind of look well fed anyway. I bet when they get gas, it's pretty hideous. Although I think it's good for the atmosphere. But but even beyond those, it's especially those relationships with, with two of the dogs in particular. There's Runt, who he has like a great camaraderie with, who like sits with him while he watches the storms, even if Runt's like a little too wet. Runt also finds himself rolling around in puddles with other dead animals, which George like, you know, it's just like one step too far for his hotel room. He doesn't want that stinking it up, you know, and he's, he's feeding him dog treats through the crack in the doors. But his... Yeah, his like relationship with the animals in the film was so touching throughout and so funny. That's like some of the best one-liners he has is when he's just cracking jokes at dogs rolling around on the ground. Yeah, I mean, he is like this this like he's just incredibly present 
in in mm-hmm. everything. And even though obviously he's playing with the idea of like separation and mediation and and you know sort of like uh, spectacles that are filtered through windows, TV screens, doors, the imagination, whatever, like he is like incredibly uh, focused on like whatever he's looking at, whatever his camera's looking at, whatever he's interacting with. Uh, and it's it's like amazing to sort of like watch all of this taking place. I mean, it's it's like stream of consciousness, but but really like being conscious like and and not just like up in his in his mind but but in what he's seeing what he's hearing what he's smelling his senses of of the world around him this is why again i think like the the walden comparison is so apt because like he is he is focusing on so much of what we normally sort of gloss over in our in our daily life and he's like really really like laying it all um in front of us in a way in which like things that are trash become beautiful things that we would normally not think about for a second uh, longer than whatever, you know, when we noticed it or heard it, like it becomes something that, that has poetry, that has meaning, that has like concepts behind it. I mean, the, the animal stuff, like the, the dead bird, even like we, we suddenly are, are reflecting on, on life and death in, in, in very like strange, profound ways. I mean, it is, it's, it's like so amazing uh, and again, comparing it to this like elaborate dolphin scene in White Squall, it's just <laughs> it's cartoonish by 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 comparison. Great moment when George films these these kids for like a sequence, and uh, there's just cuts to them playing in a in a dumpster, and he goes, "Kids were having fun in the garbage dump." And that's what it's all about. Hell and yeah. that's what it's all about. It's as direct <laughs> as that, you know? It's funny. I hadn't ever thought about George Kuchar in my mind as, like, having a ton of parallels with John Wilson's, like, current work. Until now. Until now. I mean, yeah, because, like, you know, my familiarity with George was more, like, you know, the really campy, goofy stuff. Where, like, these, yeah. like, melodramatic recreations of, like, you know, making little Hollywood films. And this film really has so much in common with like how to with John Wilson and his style, especially the fact that he never lets you forget his presence. And as even when he's talking to other people, like he's as much a part of this project as, as everyone else is. And I really love, I found this great quote from George and I love the way that he described his camera. This whole quote is like so beautiful. So I'm just going to read like a, a little chunk of it before it gets to that. But he says, And this is him talking about the Weather Diaries project in total. It was like he wrote this piece in reaction to like a series that was being presented. They were showing like a bunch of them. Um, And he mentions, therefore, the videos in the Weather Diaries depict the turmoil, tedium, terror, and televised terrain of tornado country through the eyes of a transplant. At times I try to blend in to digest the alien ambience, the fast food, and slow motion days. Ailments galore pepper the series, along with glimpses of those who pass like gas, vapors of vitality to sniff at with a gizmo that doesn't have a nose. 
but I do hope you enjoy what its eye captures on this journey of jubilant junk food and delightful dread. And I like how, Andy, you very specifically had pointed out like the smells of this movie and George oh, sniffing around everywhere. Man. And it, it's like nice that he has a note about like this camera can't quite smell. Like it has all these other features, but like I need to bring that to this project, you know, to this world of jubilant vapors and passing gas, you know? Um, But it is a very sensory experience, and he uses his camera, I think, in a really unique way. I mean, like, I'm going to sound like a real asshole here for a second, but, like, to me, being, like, in this movie and i i really feel like i was in this movie you know this was almost like a 4d experience for me (laughs) when i was watching it i was like i was like this man has has more than any other filmmaker i've ever seen before like uh cinematically shown me what deleuze meant by a plane of imminence like (laughs) This, this is the body without organs right here. Like, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm finally understanding. Like, this is what, this is what Deleuze meant, you know? Uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Like, I, you know, when he says even just like, Ooh, stinky, I'm just like, Oh my God. Like the synapses in my brain that started firing (laughs) over the sock that he just showed me, you know? And then cut to Godzilla or whatever. I, I just, I, I was, I was on a whole nother wavelength with this one. I gotta, I gotta be honest with you. Man, I really wish I could remember the other Gauntlet film where you had a similar reaction where you said, I finally understand what Deleuze was talking about. There was like definitely another film where you like, you're like, I now get it. Well, the fact that I, the fact that I even can't remember what that previous film was shows you that, that I didn't get it then. Yeah. And I do now like, this is it. No, I was wrong before folks. You know, one, one other interesting thing that I found about weather diary is, as present, you know, as he is, you know, and the, the, the presence of the camera being present, Kuchar talks at multiple points about storms uh, as being dreams and as being mm-hmm. memories, right? You know, he has a couple lines where it's like, oh, yeah, that really bad storm yesterday. You know, it's just like it's a dream now, you know. Uh, and he also, of course, uh, makes reference to storms as uh, ejaculations. And there's even a fun, you know, like uh, associational uh, bit where like right after he mentions wet dreams in relation to the storm, he cuts to like gushing water, like streams overflowing or whatever. And I'm like, again, this motherfucker is making like, you know, jokes about uh, ejaculating with visual association edited in camera. Uh, And that, you know, again... It's a beautiful thing. The collision of the sacred and profane is constant throughout the whole film, whether we're witnessing gothic level storms that feel like sublime in the literary tradition and he smash cuts to the toilet flushing and talking about that as its own type of hurricane. When we see his like clogged sink that looks like it's filled with piss, but it may have just been like the the coloring of that particular shot. And then we cut 
to drips of water like peppering really muddy looking puddles outside you know and all of these things feel as though they're being weaved together and everything is treated as equally beautiful by this roving eye of the camera and i think it's just yeah there's something about it like he still manages to take all of this juvenile stuff all of this piss and poop and bug bites and dirty undies and it just makes you think about how beautiful everything is, <laughs> you know? Storms are a complex melange of pressure and temperature and moisture and, and you know, all kinds of substances that, that collide and swirl around and, and create you know, very at times like beautiful anomalies in our own existence and and they can dissipate as mysteriously and, and thunderously as they began, which is very much like what he has created in this film. I mean, mm -hmm. it is just... Uh, 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 we're being battered at all times. And really that's, that's the human existence. Those are the same kinds of experiences we have emotionally, psychologically, mentally, physically in our, in our day-to-day -day life. We have our, our sudden storms that, that affect us because of our interactions with, with people or the, the objects in our home or something we fucking ate, you know? And, and as much as we we can try to predict them, chase them, get ahead of them, prevent them, batten down the hatches, prepare for them, all this kind of shit. It's like, we can't, you, you can't, you, you simply have to, to quote Jeff Bridges and White Squall, you've got to, you know, face the wind. You've just got to ride it out. You've just got to wait for it to pass and hope that it didn't knock your whole house down, that it didn't uh, uh, tear your relationship apart with someone or, or something. Like, this movie is a fucking tornado, a whirlwind, a hurricane, a, a, a typhoon of so many different kinds of, of experiences. And a lot of beef stew uh, as well. A lot of, a lot of ill-advised beef stew. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I can't help but think about this one moment in the white squall and I have like no idea how to weave it in. Um, but thinking about how beautifully you've captured what I loved about the weather diaries, I'll just like leave this note about a moment that I like had a ton of fun mocking, uh, the white squall with Molly. There's this really bizarre shot in the film when they have this party and Jeff Bridges is like dancing with his wife and it's like this very formal, cute little dance and it's this wide shot and there's like a little kitten on the table that's like eating some leftover food. And in the midst of their dance, there's a dissolve where they evaporate from the image like ghosts and Jeff Bridges and his wife are gone, but the party is like still going on. It's not as if like a ton of time has passed, even though I think that's like kind of what it's suggesting. It's like a really funny gesture. And when it happened, Molly jokingly said like, and they were never seen again. <laughs> and I was thinking about how fucking funny it would have been if from that point on in the movie, Jeff Bridges and his wife had 
disappeared. Like how amazing of a turn that would have been and how bold for a movie that is like so conservative in its approach and how cookie cutter its plotting is to have the captain and the like just the skipper himself evaporate into thin air and yeah, everyone that's like, the Antonioni approach. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What a weird shot though, right? Like <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. But then you'd lose the money shot of of watching him, you know, have to to witness his wife drag down to Davy Jones locker and, <laughs> and yeah. like wave goodbye to her. Well, I'll tell you what, you could have rescued me from like popular American songs being rendered in extreme close up on like steel drums. Like they can't even show who's playing this music at this all white Dutch girl uh hoedown. I mean, get the fuck out. I mean, among its many, many, like, offenses that we've, like, laid out, like, this is, like, in 1996, like, you know, avowedly a colonial film. Like, (laughs) I mean, it is is 100% on the side of the colonizer in, in, in every aspect you can imagine. There's even like these moments that, again, like aren't intended, but it's almost like a, a fucking like spoof at a certain point. Because like uh, at the beginning, when they're like getting to, they're they're ma- they're getting ready to make way, you know, and and we see the hustle and bustle of them preparing the ship. We do get this like one little kind of throwaway moment as the the camera's like panning across all this hustle and bustle, where the cook, the the you know the quote Cuban chef on on board the ship is like talking to a local woman of this, you know, Caribbean island that they're on. And she has all this, you know, she has a cart filled with like fruits and vegetables or whatever. And you just hear, I don't know if either of you caught it, the chef looking at it and going, I'll give you $1 for everything. And it's like, (laughs) that's it. You know, like, oh, this woman got a dollar from these fucking assholes, you know? And it's like... No bargaining to be had, poor, poor woman. Like, this is the best offer you're going to get for the, the little daddy sailing boys ship school, whatever the fuck it is, you know? I will say it was nice, though, getting to see all those boys just fucking hurl <laughs> off the edge of the boat when they finally take to sea. There was, like, a pretty good, like, two, three, five scope image of just, like, barfing boys off the side of the boat and then it like it kept going like a full scene played out and they were it was as if the boys were relegated to extras who had to like keep pretending to barf in the background of the shot as like a scene was happening i enjoyed that so that's like a nice little treat what i didn't enjoy was ridley going all in on uh ship cam you know just doing these really obnoxious like camera like bobbing uh things all the time yeah so when I was watching the film, and obviously like I, you know, Marsh gave me the 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 gift before I watched it of of revealing to me that, you know, your Q pill. That's why yeah, you picked it. <laughs> yeah, that this is the the QAnon movie. So while <laughs> I was watching it, I kept thinking to myself like like all right, so what like what is it? you know, that has made this like the, the rallying cry. And it's like, yes, it's the line. And of course you can take the line out of context and you can misinterpret it as a lot of people have. But I was thinking like, but if this came from Q, like, and, and I don't know if it came directly from Q or if Q is 25 people or one person or whatever, but I was like, how is this then it, you know, how is this the, 
the the Q fucking thing, right? And again, we've talked about the idea of the coming storm, right? And and that the boys on the ship, this this team, it's they're the the Q people, right? They're the 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 Qberts or whatever they're called. I don't fucking <laughs> know, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like so they're the they're the boys, they're on the ship, right? Okay. So then what is the storm? Because in their eyes, the storm's a good thing, right? Right. Draining the swamp. Yeah. But in this the where we go one, where we go all, the storm's a bad thing. Very right? bad. Are they in the ship or are we on the ship? Are the libs the, the boys who need to be punished on the ship, right? Like, I'm trying to figure it out. What do you guys think? Like, Well, I mean, the wife does go down with the ship and she's one of the people that is like criticizing her husband's kind of authoritarian behavior. You know, she's the one who's like, hey, I think you're going a little hard on these boys, your discipline might be too intense. Why don't you show some compassion and empathy? And that could be like the soft lib going down with the ship that the, you know, Jeff Bridges himself kind of has to cast off. So she was Hillary. She was Hillary, yes. I just kept thinking the whole time, like, this movie's about a bunch of losers, you know? So, <laughs> like, that, so that, like, I, I don't again I, I I couldn't I couldn't untangle it you know and again I don't think it you know I guess it's supposed I think it's to accurate it. in what you said which is that they haven't watched the movie they've only watched the trailer right right and that that, that makes yeah. sense you know because I I was then even being like at the ending okay this is this is the tribunal the January sixth committee you know like <laughs> and and Jeff Bridges is Trump you know like that's right. he's daddy like yeah. and they like daddy. And now the January 6th committee is trying to say that, you know, the storm. Because there's a lot of fake news uh, going on about, about you know, what actually happened. Oh, yeah. Because, like, you know, the film prints the legend. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. Mm. And so then, to me, the storm in this regard is the storm of wokeness, right? It's yes. the storm yeah. of, of progressivism. And, and you've got to face it. You know, you can't stop it you've just got to try not to to drown when it when it comes crashing over you. yeah and when the cubans come over you know the sides of your boat and and you know exactly. shake you down yeah like just just drag you off to a cuban prison or some shit like that yeah <laughs> definitely so then now that i guess that makes a little bit more sense to me so i could see it then so yeah yeah, yeah. every time you said um q himself Watching this movie in the 90s, I, I couldn't help but think you were talking about James Bond's quartermaster. Q watching the White Squall. Bond alert. Jesus Christ. Come on. That's the worst Bond alert yet. You know, I was surprised there was a... There was no bond in uh, Weather Diary for all the TV yeah. that uh, yeah. that George watches, and he he seems to be a prolific watcher of television, as mm -hmm. as he complains about. This is a this though when it was made was a sort of like lull in the Bond franchise, wouldn't you say, Ryan? Eighty six, yeah, but I mean, you know, thinking about what's on TV, I mean, I figured he'd be catching Thunderball or something, you know, just as it was airing. But yeah, for sure. Well, with the way he goes on about voluptuous women, I got to imagine George Kuchar is a big fan of Bond girls. Yes, I would not be surprised. My favorite line was when he was uh, talking. I mean, you know, he talks about Gloria a lot, but uh, there's like this one moment where he's describing like seeing her coming back from church. I saw boiling clouds and I saw a tornado attempt to drop down and then it didn't touch the ground, but it moved off. 
And about an hour later, I saw Gloria. She's coming home from church wearing black lace. I said to her, Gloria, I saw a tornado, and she looked at me like I, I was some kind of a nut. What the hell was she doing in church wearing black lace? That woman. She was too attractive. Too voluptuous to be trapped in a land of Dairy Queen fatzos. But I'm uh, digressing. These storms are heading toward Oklahoma City. <laughs> Like, he wants to rescue Gloria and take her away from from all of this. You know? Yeah, those those desperate moments are great, you know. And his his late confession that he uh, he he beats his meat every night <laughs> yeah, to, yeah. to calm down. Yeah, you know, to say nothing of the the dong uh, at the end. You know, yeah. no spoilers. Yeah, I am glad that we didn't have to like see any like leftover ejaculate at any point in the film. You know, like. <laughs> That we we did get of. off easy. Yeah, we got yeah. off easy for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. It's a beautiful movie, folks. I mean, it really is like a, a gorgeous experience that you could have. Mm-hmm. And yeah, White Squall just fucking sucks, dude. Yeah. I couldn't believe it just kept going on. You it's know? a long like, ass movie. It's, it's like, it's well over two hours. And it's, it's, I clocked it. It's like, it's 90 some, maybe like a hundred minutes before the fucking storm hits. Mm-hmm. And it only lasts for like 15. Yeah. Cause I, I, yeah, I mistakenly presumed the storm was going to be like the, the ending. No, we have to have the inquiry. And you know, I discovered too, I had to do some research on this because I really was, especially with the inquiry, like, okay, Albatross you know, the story that they're trying to tell is that, it was a white squall. It was this sort of act of God, and there's nothing that the the brave noble skipper could have done. But in in more like sort of modern, you know, forensics and investigation into it, there there's quite a lot of people who who think he was full of shit that it, it wasn't a white squall, and they actually blamed the vessel itself, the albatross. Now, I don't know if you guys know anything about the history of the actual albatross, but it, it began its life, you know, I think uh, many, many, many years before this story. But in the mid-50s, the ship was bought by a man named Ernest K. Gann, who was, among other things, a writer and a, a screenwriter. And he bought the ship and then had it, like, outfitted to be a much bigger, like, looking sailing ship, a brigantine as as it was in this film, as it's depicted in this film. And the reason he did that was because he wrote a sailing novel that he then turned into a film starring Rock Hudson called Twilight for the Gods in 19... 19- uh, 58, the actual albatross was a, a Hollywood star of its own in this movie. Wow. Experts now have said it was the rigging of the ship, among other things, for that film, which made it top heavy and likely to capsize in such dramatic weather. So basically... Hollywood yeah. killed those people. Rock Hudson, Ernest K. Gann, uh, they sank the albatross, oh my not goodness. the white squall itself. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Hollywood oh largesse strikes again. Yeah. 
Wow. And to think that Ridley, you know, did what he did with the material. Another Hollywood cover-up. Yeah. See, Clint would have told us about that. Clint yeah. would have told oh, us yeah. about the 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 potential hazards created by the Hollywood studio system in the uh, safety uh, of all people on board this ship. Yeah, I can't believe there was never a scene of just them discussing the history of the vessel itself, you know, to prove that Jeff Bridges, like, actually cared about it and felt some ownership of it, you know? And I do think it's funny, too, I'm, like, suddenly remembering that when, you know, this film does feel like it never ends. And when it finally does end, we get, like, a couple postscripts, one of which tells us that the camaraderie that all these boys experienced, like, helped them make it through Vietnam, which I thought was super funny. Yeah, and now outrageous title because again the what is the implication there then that like they learned discipline on the ship so they survived vietnam that's such a fucked up uh like way to wrap up the movie yeah and another lie (laughs) i mean just another fucking lie it's just like another nail in the coffin just like cementing the fact that this film is like of the colonial mindset you know in the 90s it ends with like a speech where where he's like the burden of sea captains and fathers, the burden <laughs> of men. I mean, it's the most... Of daddies. Yeah, it's the most patriarchal, just patronizing fucking dribble. It's just like a fucking, like Ryan said, it's like a big fucking turd. This that- is worse than bed knobs <laughs> and broomsticks in that regard. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, not even yeah. close. Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, yeah. And on the on the flip side, you know, we we get a little tease at the end of Weather Diary where he suggests to uh, the camera, us, that uh, he may be back for some more. Bond will be back. (laughs) (laughs) Man, I have access to Weather Diaries three, four and five. We need to like raid the video data bank in Chicago. They have Weather Diary two. And it's like not available anywhere else. Yeah. Cause I'll tell you what, I won't be able to watch three, four, or five if I haven't seen two. I'll be totally I, lost. Yes. I know. Interestingly, they all get shorter. Mm-hmm. One is the longest one. It's like 80 minutes, 82 minutes. You know, it's I think it's really, really if I'm trying to even like kind of put a bow on this experience as well, I think it's really perfect that this is this is called Weather Diary, that it's a diary. Because, you know, I was even thinking about like the idea of like the essay film. And this is so not an essay film. This is a diary. This is absolutely mm-hmm. the form of a diary and how one would sort of like fill those pages with the same kinds of like flights of fancy and 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 just sort of just just bald experiences yeah it's like when you're sitting and reflecting about the day you just experienced how your mind like jumps back and forth between the myriad of experiences and makes like brand new connections because that's how your memory works you know when you're trying to reflect on the past day and his way of assembling all of that footage feels like the brain directly you know on paper on the diary yeah immediately as well Mm -hmm. you know and especially knowing now that it was more or less like edited on the fly i mean it's it's the same way you sort of scribble desperately like certain things that have just happened to you that you've just experienced yeah it's certainly better than the purple prose of scott wolf's diary in 
white squall, oh which is just like <laughs> platitude after platitude. So again, even there's a diaristic aspect there, but uh, doesn't doesn't live up to the to the real diary, you know? No, 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 no. <laughs> well, Ryan, uh, these were our storms. We we hit you with some some wind and some rain and some hail and some poop. Uh, what <laughs> in your mind when you think of of you know storms in cinema? What 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 pops in there for you? It's funny. There's all sorts of different stuff that pops into my head, but when I'm thinking about the severity of weather and especially the severity of this double feature that we we just experienced. I think it's good to have like two contrasts of two different types of weather. So I was trying to think of a hot one and a cold one. And uh, the hot one, you know, kind of a an oddball pick, but I, I recently did enjoy that movie Crawl that came out a couple of years ago, which is that like hurricane movie with the killer alligator. Mm-hmm. And um, it's that woman just like swimming around and going in all these homes in Florida while there's like a giant alligator coming after her. Um, I thought I had a great time. I've been meaning to see it. Yeah, that, so that that was from the summer of Movie Pass, where it was like we got to experience so many treasures uh, throughout the summer, and that was definitely definitely a highlight. Um, but a, a film that I think is legitimately great that I would highly recommend anyone check out, and I don't know if either of you have seen it, is the Larry Fessenden film, The Last Winter. And talk about Mother Nature's Wrath. That film obviously shares a lot of um, lifeblood with the thing, just in terms of like the extreme qualities of its like Arctic location. This is uh, way up north. And the paranoia that's like suffered amongst all of these people. Um, it's one of my favorite you know, relatively contemporary horror films. It's from like the early 2000s. Um, But Larry Fessenden's The Last Winter is like a remarkable piece of work with some very severe weather. I've seen it. I also love it. And I can't believe it didn't come into my mind for this week. (laughs) Because it would have been such a great movie to discuss. It really is. An amazing movie. I love that movie so much. It's so good. We'll bring it on some other time. I'd love to see that thing again. Yeah. Well, yeah. So uh, that was um, that was a wild storm <laughs> that we experienced. So I've been um, I was checking the forecast for next week, but it's it's a little cloudy. Marsh, I need you to like kind of give me some clarity on what what we'll be watching next week on the Gauntlet. Well, you know, last week we were making fun of Danny Boyle. <laughs> And so I was thinking, we were talking about 28 Days Later, and I was thinking about mini-DV, and then we were taken to Oklahoma with George Kuchar and treated to, you know, 8mm video, and I enjoyed it so much, I thought, uh, it's time. Let's get digital. Next week, I want you to bring me films from that transitional period in cinema history. Mini-DV, DV, we'll talk about the rules off-air, but I'm looking for a specific video vibe for next week's movies. You got it. Only if I can make sure that we can source some prints because that's that's really the best way to watch that stuff. DV printed on 35. It's My true. God, it's so beautiful. The dream. 
as always, you uh, you may or may not be able to follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies. <laughs> you can definitely and please do send us an email. Send us all your email correspondence at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Yes, it must have been a horrible night in Edmund. All those TV watchers finding escape in TV and the TV warning them to escape from a twister. The sky, a hideous mass of swirling VCRs and Magnavox consoles. Miraculously, no one was killed when the storm struck because of the TV warnings. And TV replayed the whole event. In Edmund, is this the tape? Okay, this is part of the wall cloud. And uh, where was this shot from? Yeah, just south. Yeah, this, okay, this is pointing up right in the Edmund area. And as this progresses, you see a tornado come down. This was shot. But there it comes, right there in the center of the screen. As it was taken just moments ago, the tornado moved through the Edmund area. Okay, there it is, coming on down. Coming on down. Once again, this was filmed by Channel 9 crew just moments ago. I'm telling you folks, we are non-believers at this point. You need to take immediate tornado precautions. That very definitely was an umbrella day for the people of Edmond, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks, Roy, for giving me the towels. Look where I hang my underwear to dry uh, on the hook there. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, uh, see the hook behind you? Oh. Yeah, put it up there so it dries. Why don't you take them up there and let Ruth wash them out for you? Oh, that's all right. I wouldn't let anybody touch that underpants, I tell you. It's not, uh, it's not toxically safe. Like your shirts or your britches or whatever? Yeah. She can throw them in the washing machine and dry them up there. It won't take a little bit. I give Runt the dog biscuit. Hey, Roy, they turned out good for pictures. They did. Yeah, take a look at them. Well, they're nice and rich, aren't After you finish with that carpet, why don't you try the pillows in the other room? Take care of yourself. Maybe I'll see you next year. Bye.